Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. We want to look tonight at the servant and his ambition. Mark 9.33, and he came to Capernaum. He had been away from Capernaum for quite a time, kind of avoiding this area as he's moving closer to Jerusalem. We didn't get to it this morning. We've been culminating to the point where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And now he's decreasing in moving more toward working with his disciples and headed toward Jerusalem. So anyway, he comes back to Capernaum, which has been one of the main towns where he's working. Some say this is where his headquarters was, and kind of a misnomer because he didn't really have a place to call home. And it says being in the house. Whose house? What house? Is this a normal place where he went? He asked them, What is it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? Now, he knew the answer to that question, right? Because he's God. He's doing like God did with Adam in the garden. Adam... What's the matter? God knew what was the matter was. So he's bringing these disciples to the place of confession. But they held their peace. In other words, they didn't say anything. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. I wonder how they got to that place. Who's the better preacher among us? Who can sing the best? Do we promote some of that? I wonder sometimes. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So we're going to talk about the servant and his ambition here. Ambition can be positive and negative. Number one, ambition can can shame. Ambition can shame. The, The ambition that these disciples had, now they're looking for the kingdom of God. And they're looking for a place of prominence, a position, service, if you will, in the kingdom of God. But looking about who is going to be greatest, in the kingdom of God. Of course, their concept of the kingdom was a literal, physical kingdom. I believe that was the proper attitude to have. It wasn't something that the Lord was going to bring immediately. In fact, it's still yet future. And many would criticize us because, well, the disciples were looking for it and see a kingdom didn't come and you guys are still looking for it today. It ain't going to come. Well, it is going to come. And the promises of God are sure. And what the disciples were banking on are those promises of God that are sure God will bring about a kingdom. They thought, of course, he was going to do it in their day. You go to the book of Acts, and you find in the first chapter there, after the resurrection, 
They asked the Lord, is now the time when you're going to bring in your kingdom? So they had this impression, this idea that the Messiah would quell the Romans. The Romans, of course, were the ones that were in charge. You know that now, since we went through geography, right? That we went through from Daniel's day, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greco-Macedonians and into the Romans. So you know now, if you didn't know before, that during the New Testament time, the Romans were in charge. And so they thought that the Lord would come and quell all of that turmoil that they had uh, with the Romans, the publicans collecting taxes for the Romans and, and causing some trouble there. Now, they didn't mean, when they said who would be the greatest in the kingdom, who would be the greatest in quality or character, but in name and position. Evidently, I think they're getting this from Old Testament, and I don't have the places where we can go to look for this, that the Old Testament sort of indicates that the, these Old Testament saints would have positions of authority in God's kingdom. I believe this is brought out in, in some more of the parables, not so much taught in the Gospel of Mark, but in some of the other Gospels. Uh, but anyway, they were thinking more in the terms of power, of fame, of wealth even, position, and that sort of thing. They, of course, sensed that the Lord was going to set up his kingdom, and that's where he was working. Remember, John the Baptist came on the scene, and what did he preach? Repent, why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus taught the same thing. So he did preach about the kingdom. So they anticipated this kingdom was uh, to be approaching. And they were looking forward to being chiefs of state in the kingdom. What do we call it? Secretary of the Defense or uh, whatever position they might have been looking for. And uh, you can imagine, what were they arguing about? You know, well, who's going to be the treasurer? I guess we didn't have the defection of Judas yet in the, the uh, gospel record. Who would be his minister of finance, who would be his minister of benevolence, who would be the education director. I don't know what all they were arguing about. But who would be the greatest amongst them? So they sensed that he was going to set up his kingdom. Three of the disciples had already been pointed out as somewhat special. Peter, James, and John were the three that went with the Lord up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And so I'm sure the disciples already sent that Peter, James, and John were somewhat special in the Lord's eyes. And Peter seems to be even more distinguished than others. Maybe that was because he was the spokesman. He said what others felt. You know, there are people that do that. You ever get in a discussion group and you feel like, well, somebody ought to say something, but I'm not going to be one to do it. And then somebody says something or asks the question, we often say that when we're in teaching a class. Don't be afraid to ask questions because the question that you ask, somebody else is thinking about but afraid to ask. So some of us go ahead and, and, and ask the questions, and Peter was that kind of a person. So there were already some leaders amongst the crowd that took some uh, prominence there. And so what, what were they arguing about? There may have been some jealousy amongst the twelve because some were recognized more than others, envy, maybe even some rivalry there. James and John, of course, were brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers. Maybe Andrew was, I'm just suggesting, I mean, I don't know what's going on here, was jealous of his brother Peter because he was more recognized than he. Jesus had just talked to them about his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not the first time he did it. We suggested, I think it was the last time we gathered together on Mark, that they misinterpreted his words about his death and his resurrection. They probably spiritualized 
that the resurrection was going to be the revival of this kingdom. And so now they're thinking, oh, well, he's going to rise again, and so this kingdom is coming, and so they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. The Bible says here that they disputed among themselves. That's a pretty strong word. So they're not just discussing this or ribbing each other about it, but really getting hot and heavy about it. Here's the thought. Ambition that leads to argument and division is wrong. Ambition that leads to argument and division is wrong. So ambition can shame. It doesn't have to, but ambition that leads to argument and division is wrong. These men were arguing and becoming divided over this. The person who seeks and secures by dispute and division will soon stand before Christ and will be ashamed. Why? Because we're going to be called into question about that. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. I don't have the verse and the reference for that, but something about every idle word, we're going to have to give account of every idle word. So there is a time when we'll have to stand before the Lord to give account of the reasonings and the disputings that we go through. When you think about it, think about the times when you've gotten into an argument with somebody. Maybe it was your spouse, maybe it was your children, maybe it was somebody else in the church. And you think back on those things. A lot of times those are about little things that when you look back on them, they're not going to really amount to much of anything. Let's see now, when did we have that evangelist? Well, I think it was in March. No, it was in April. And off and on you go, you know, back and forth. And we think we're right about something. And does it really matter? So we have this tendency to think we're right. So we all have to give an account for our disputes and for our idle words. Now, the problem with this ambition is ambition is a good thing, but it needs instruction. You think about your children... You don't really have to stir them up. They're going to get excited about things. They'll get excited about things, and they'll be enthused about doing something, but maybe it's an enthusiasm about doing something that's not proper or, you know, the wrong thing or the wrong direction. So ambition needs instruction. So verse 35, he sat down. Usually they tell us that when a rabbi was teaching, he would sit down. Okay, now we got to get down to business, and so he sat down, and the students stood. We never did that in college. It was always the the teacher that stood and the students that sat. But in this day, the teacher would sit and the pupils would stand. And when the teacher sat, then they knew, okay, he's got some serious business to teach us here. So he sat down and he called the twelve and he saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and the servant of all. So he's teaching some servant attitudes here. He's instructing them giving them instruction on the things of God. They must be corrected and taught the truth about these things. The disciples had really slipped into a gross error here and really committed a serious sin thinking who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord had to give them some instruction here and give them some proper direction. That was point number two. Ambition needs instruction. Ambition can shame, that's number one, Number two, ambition needs instruction. Now that instruction, number three, ambition must be directed toward the right goal. 
That's going to be verses 35, 36, and 37. The right goal. Now, ambition is a virtue. You need that. That's enthusiasm. One of the things that I remember from expository preaching class, or homiletics as some would call it, we would preach to the class, and the students would have a checklist, and they'd go through the checklist, and almost invariably, every preacher was told, more enthusiasm. (laughs) More enthusiasm. More ambition. Ambition is a good thing. It's a virtue. So it's not wrong to have uh, ambition. Not wrong to have desires. You know, I think even even at my age, what are my desires for the rest of my life? What are our goals? What do we want to accomplish in the time we have left? I don't know about you, but I think of the time I have left, and and it's probably shorter than the time I've lived. So what have I accomplished in the time I've lived, and what do I want to accomplish in the time I have left? Those are things to think about, and it's not bad to have ambitions. You know, years ago, my wife and I surrendered to missions. As Rhoda was telling the story here about her uh, her grandson, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe the Lord will call my wife and I to some mission field and uh, teach in a Bible college. I don't know what the Lord has planned for the rest of my life. We're willing to do whatever. And then I think, no, I don't think he's going to do that because we can't handle this, that, or the other thing. And and so I don't know what the Lord's doing. But where does the Lord want, and what does he want from this ministry, this church? What's the future of this church? The goals, what are the ambitions? It's not wrong to have ambitions. It's not wrong to have drives and desires. A lot of the ambitions that I've had have been fulfilled. You know, there's some things that I've had as an ambition earlier on, and they're kind of not completely gone, but like the idea of writing books, that's kind of almost out the window for me. I don't know if I'll ever get that done or not. The desire to do that is not as strong as it was in the past. So I don't know what is going on with our future. You don't know either, your future. What does God have for you? But it's not wrong to have ambitions. What is wrong is the direction of those ambitions. The energy, the motive, the efforts that we put toward those things need to be directed in the right direction. And that's what was wrong with the disciples. They had ambition, but it was directed at the wrong goal. The way to greatness, they said in verse four or 34, who should be the greatest? The way to greatness is through service and humility. That direction was not a part of their thinking. They thought, well, the reason, the way to get great is like we have it today. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, thrust yourself forward. They tell you when you write a resume to put yourself forward. And that's what the world is looking for today. They don't want to know what you can't do. They want to know what you can do. And some people embellish that a little bit to make their resume look good. But if a man wishes to be great, then he must actively seek to serve. That's the Bible way. You want to be great, be a servant. Go down instead of up. The world says you want to be great, go up. It doesn't matter what your position, what your authority, how high on the totem pole of the business or the organization that you're going to get. A good president is a president who knows how to serve. 
A good pastor is a pastor who knows how to serve. A good whatever, CEO or whatever position, is a person who knows how to serve. And serve humbly. That's the Bible way to get to a position of authority. So, the instruction. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last, and servant of all. That's the instruction that the Lord gave. was the wrong direction. Then he took a child, verse 36, and he set the child in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive such children in my name, receiveth me. So, being humble enough to receive a child. So, to be great, a man's ambition must be to use his gifts and his abilities, whatever they are, however varied they might be, to serve others. Not to show off to others, but to serve others. And to do it humbly. The person who has the talent, the abilities, uh, and doesn't parade them in front of everybody, is the person who learns to be a servant. So, a man's ambition would be to use those gifts, those abilities to serve others, and of course serve the Lord in whatever possible way that could be used. We've been studying the book of Romans. Romans 12.3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And then the Lord uses this child to teach a lesson And it says that he took the child and set him in the midst of them. And then his instructions were, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name. So receiving the children. This is the way that we demonstrate a servant attitude. Let me give you five ways, I guess we could use that word, to receive a child. Receiving a child requires humility took the child, these men were not full of humility. They're arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And you receive a child, you have to do it with humility. Sometimes in the matters of adult life, we consider a child useless. You were probably told this, and maybe even told your children, well, wait till you grow up. (laughs) Like as if the child can't know anything. Unable to contribute to the adult conversation. We were told to listen. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. It's not true anymore. But that's the generation we had. And that's a good thing, but uh, not to the point where you can't learn anything from a child. The Bible says that a child shall lead them. So we can learn something from the children. But in this attitude... Adults sometimes overlook and fail to consider the great contributions that a child can make to an adult. So receiving a child requires humility. I'm an adult. Why should I listen to a child? But a child requires and teaches the spirit of love, caring, forgiveness, courage, trust, and so on. When you look at children, they'll fight about things, and then next thing you know, they're making up. They're playing again. Teenagers will fight and they'll carry grudges for a while. Adults fight and never get over it. We need to be like children. What You mean we can't learn anything from a child? Sure we can. A person who serves a child must be humble. Receiving a child also requires courage. A child is a great responsibility as a parent, of course, or as anyone who is a 
caretaker for a, a child. You undertake the care and the welfare of the child if you're going to be a babysitter. It takes great responsibility. So a person who serves a child must be courageous. Number three, receiving a child requires faith and trust. A person has to believe that the child is going to learn and respond from your teaching, not rebel and reject that teaching. So that requires faith on the part of the one teaching. When we worked in the children's ministry, we expected the children to listen to what we were teaching them. That is to be expected. It requires faith and trust. Receiving a child also requires patience and endurance because the child is not necessarily going to learn right away. Some do, some don't, but sometimes the child can be slow to learn something and sometimes feels like they never learn. We say that as adults and parents sometimes. When will you ever learn? So a person who serves a child must be patient. Jesus is teaching some principles to these disciples, isn't he? And number five, receiving a child also requires forgiveness. Children will fail. I should have been giving you some verses as we went along here. Receiving a child requires humility. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up for he, that's uh, James 4.10. Here's Isaiah 57.15. For thus saith the, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to receive the heart of the contrite ones. Humility. Many, many verses we could find on, on humility. Receiving the child takes courage. We are to, Romans 15.1, bear one another's infirmities. We then that are strong, that would you assume would be the adults, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, that you assume would be the children, and not to please ourselves. So the strong should bear the infirmities of the weak. Galatians 6, 2, of course, tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We don't have a reference for receiving the child with faith and trust. Patience and endurance, that would be a verse like Acts 20 and verse 35. I will have showed you all things. How that so laboring you ought to support the weak. To remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive and being patient. And then uh, number five was receiving a child requires forgiveness. A child fails or falls and makes mistakes and he does it time and again. So we, if we're going to receive a child, we're going to have to exercise forgiveness. And of course Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So all in all, the Lord is teaching these disciples about their ambition. Ambition can shame if it's the wrong kind of ambition. It's all about self. Ambition needs instruction. And, of course, we need to do that with our children. Instruct them about their, use their enthusiasm. You know, don't tell them to curb that and don't use it, but use it and channel it in the right direction. And then, of course, give them direction. Ambition is a virtue, but it needs direction. And we need direction as God's children as well. So he uses the illustration here of receiving the child. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, 
receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So he's really putting this all back to God. So when you're receiving the children, having this humble spirit on the ambition, you're following the Lord. The servant and his ambition. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again to look at the Gospel of Mark and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he teaches us about ambition. Help us to channel our ambitions in the right direction. If we're short on ambition, I pray that you'll help us to be encouraged in the Lord and strengthened in the Lord, realizing that in Christ we can do all things through him that strengtheneth us. And we pray that you'll help us to be the kind of servants with the right kind of ambition to serve you the best we can in the days we have left before the Lord comes again or until we pass off this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So enchained my spirit's vision, looking at the crucified. Oh, for Jesus, oh, for Jesus, looking at the crucified. Oh, for Jesus, oh, for Jesus, looking at the crucified. Father, we pray that that would be indeed be our prayer, that we would use all of ourselves to serve you. All for Jesus. Our feet, our hands, our lips, our eyes, every part of us. Help us to guard against this false ambition and to channel our ambition into true service for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh
Hedgemaker. This is Dr. Lee Hennice, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached the church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again. Thank you.